I invite us now to hear a second reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails on his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We have a rhythm to life in the church, seasons that are defined by the ordinary and extraordinary acts of God, by our call to pay attention at each step. Our liturgy, in turn, and our life together reflects major themes of these seasons. In Advent, we wait. At Christmas, we welcome. In Epiphany, we follow the light. In Lent, we journey, and at Easter, we sing for joy. In Eastertide, we look to what is next. In Pentecost, we become the church. Holy Spirit rebaptized each year. And in ordinary time, we live. Knowing myself, I suspect that we thrive on this kind of predictability. We cling to it. At particular times of life, it orders us and comforts us. And while a few surprises here and there are lovely, generally we like to know what to expect. Seasons provide this predictable flow in the church and in creation. And yet, 
We remember that the newly resurrected Jesus told Mary not to cling to him. Much like the seasons of creation, things are never quite as orderly as we'd like them to be. Sometimes there's snow in springtime, or a summer's day in late fall. Sometimes the daffodils are already in bloom in February, and a chilly rain falls in July. This happens more and more, of of course, with the certain uncertainty of climate change. The unpredictability of seasons is becoming, well, predictable. We're not quite sure what we can expect, so why not the same for the church? Surely this unpredictability was a byproduct of the pandemic, but maybe it's always been a little bit like this, and we just tried to contain it with our need to know when to wear purple and when to wear red and when to give committees a break. Take the post-resurrection story from John that we've just heard. What in the name of holy disorder is happening? Recall we are in Eastertide, these great 50 days of Easter between Resurrection Day and Pentecost, when the disciples are trying to figure out what's next and Jesus is trying to wean them and ready them and love them enough to assure them that they are okay to go on. But right there, amid our singing for joy, their eyes are still adjusting to the post-resurrection glow. Boom! It's only Easter too, and the Holy Spirit is already in the room. My calendar does not indicate red until May 28th this year. My spouse lovingly calls this the Presbyterian Pentecost. It's quiet and orderly. It's given to those who know the routine, and they seem comfortable to keep it to themselves, maybe sharing with a couple of friends. And also, there's waiting. Between his first visit and his second, the disciples wait. We've already done Advent. We've already held the tension of an expectant and weary world in this lectionary year A. Yet, here we are again. And while this is merely a passing phrase, a week later his disciples were in the house and Thomas was with them, we ought not miss the implications here. I have always wanted to be a fly in that room. The entirety of the story was contained within those locked doors. Jesus' first appearance and his second. The spirit given alongside the authority to forgive or retain sin. Peace given to. The disciples who were there and Thomas who was not. Certainty and doubt. Joy at having seen and desperation to see, to touch and to know. All of this is contained in this one story, in that one room, and a whole week that the gospel writer does not reveal. In that time, it wasn't assured that Jesus would even come back again to reveal himself to Thomas. And what then? 
how does one sit with doubt when everyone around you seems to have such certainty? How do those who were simply telling the truth of what they saw contend with a rejection that their testimony is not enough? How did the community survive this? As a gay man who grew up in a traditional Irish Catholic family in Cork in the Republic of Ireland, Padraig Otuma has wrestled with his own doubt and certainties and that of those around him. He's been told truths that didn't feel true at all and been loved by communities that didn't quite know what to do with him. In writing and in speaking on this, Otuma weaves together his own search for how to reconcile what he was so often told was irreconcilable within himself, his faith and his sexual identity, with his work facilitating conflict resolution, which has come to be a significant part of his vocation. Padraig is also a lover of language and a poet and in conflict resolution, his curiosities for language attune him, it seems, to the particulars of what is said and the way it is said, examining the spaces in between and the mistakes that reveal a possibility for greater understanding. In a chapter entitled, Hello to What We Cannot Know, Otuma begins with a story. On a Belfast bus a few years ago, I saw an advertisement for a religious meeting. The advertisement said, are you lacking faith or hope or certainty? Contact information and details of a public meeting were given and the poster suggested that the answer to the question posed was Jesus. It struck me, Otuma reflects, that those who chose the words for the poster had probably by mistake told a deep truth. Usually, following the words of St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, the Trinity is faith, hope, and love. In replacing love with certainty, much of the risk was gone. If one had to choose between love and certainty, it would be a hard choice because we have a deep desire for both. What is it that we can truly know? And perhaps asking the question pragmatically, what do we do with the knowledge that we have? Otuma continues later saying, much advertising of contemporary religious practice appeals to a crude side of our desire for certainty. Knowledge, to be sure, is a good thing. But knowledge is different than certainty. If the answer to life's question is Jesus, then it occurs to me that the wrong question might be being asked. How do I find the answer to all life's questions? Jesus. How do I end my loneliness? Jesus. How can I move from here to there? Jesus. It may be that Jesus can help, but as a companion to courage not as a chapter ending. If Jesus is the answer to the question I don't know I'm asking, 
then the anti-answer may seem to be doubt. If I need help unasking the question, I probably need to listen to the doubt. That undoes both the answers and the question. The very thing that can help me, the nudging of doubt toward a deeper exploration, is often something I've demonized and feared. Doubt is a friend of the questions, and doubt is a teacher of truth. We are taught from kindergarten on that there is no such thing as a wrong question. But this is not entirely true. Over time, we learn that in some contexts, our questions do not fit the answers we want, and vice versa. We learn that what we know is almost always incomplete, and that to limit ourselves to what we already know is to welcome self-righteousness. We learn that sometimes our determination to be right can preclude our choice to be loving. It is hard for us to know for sure how John's community remained intact and ready to receive Jesus again a week later. With the certainty and the doubt and the lingering trauma and the question of what next coexisting, we can easily imagine heated conversations and long silences, slam doors and awkward encounters around mealtimes. We can imagine it because we so often find ourselves in a similar space, conflict simmering or right out in the open, the in-between space. It has never been easy to maintain community amid difference, but we are in a season, friends, we well know, in which it feels downright impossible. Arguments are framed in terms of certainty of core values, of truth that cannot be questioned, and they presume a right answer and vilify every wrong one. But what if we could imagine what else might have taken place in that week of tense space? Doubt made that space possible remember. It made possible the option for greater understanding. Was there conversation? Questions asked, reframed, and asked differently or thrown out altogether? Stories told? With the certainty of some and the doubt of at least one, the disciples were able to also have love just as Jesus had commanded them to not too long ago. Just as I have love for you, he said to them as he washed their feet, you also ought to have love for one another. Living as we do, friends, in this season of tension and conflict and certainty and vitriol, we as the church cannot turn a blind eye, nor... Can we lean in so fully that we lose ourselves? No, we are called to minister, to minister in this space, because we are called to minister to the world as it is. And it is a tricky place to be right now, that is for sure. Yet, as the church in every season 
but particularly in Eastertide. We proclaim that which, unlike the disciples, we have not seen, but we still believe. We still hope. We still desire. We proclaim a love that overwhelms death, a love that invites question and seeks knowledge and holds together through difficult conversation and outright conflict. In a season when the need to be right supersedes the need to be loving, we, church, you and me, need to be willing to tend and hold the space. Full of doubt and uncertainty, faith-seeking understanding, inadequate questions and well-intentioned answers, lingering in the unpredictability of it, but held together by the assurance of what we proclaim. The knowledge we have is that God has been witness to in this world over generations, and the faith we have whispers to us, assures us, breathes within us that God was witness to in that locked room full of friends who had been through hell, but they were still together. It is possible then, we see, to hold together, to come to new understandings of one another, to restore trust, to build relationship, to be curious about one another again, and to love as Christ loved. As the church, we are both witness to this possibility and we are equipped and called to be in it for as long as this season should endure. May we have courage and faith. Amen.